What's up, man? How are you? Man, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, man. So we talked. I met you, worked on the project together here recently. Met you probably six or eight months ago. And uh, when I first met you, you started telling me a little bit about your past. And I was like, oh, shit, hold on. I don't want to hear anymore. We got to <laughs> we got to do a podcast whenever you have time, you know. Right. So, man, yeah, I just want to jump right into it, man. Let's yeah. just let's let everyone know kind of who you are and how you got and where you're at now, I guess. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So my name is Bill Messina. Um, I've been in law enforcement for 27 years. Uh, started out at a local sheriff's department for about seven years and uh, uh, had a great time there. Did some good things working the street and uh, working a lot of narcotics interdiction on I-20. And uh, after 9-11, I jumped on the federal side of the house. And uh, I had a tactical background at the sheriff's department that had always been kind of one of my interests. So when I naturally gravitated to going federal, uh, looking at all the agencies out there, uh, an agency within the Department of Defense really kind of struck my interest because I wanted to get overseas and wanted to get after the fight. That being said, I've never been active duty. I've never been in the Air Force, Army, Marines, Navy, anything like that. I've been uh, uh, in law enforcement since I was 20 years old. Okay. So I joined this agency uh, as a federal law enforcement officer, went through the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, to become an 1811 criminal investigator, and I've been doing that for the past 20-plus years. Um, so jumping into it at that point, you know, this was circa 2002, 2003, so we had a high deployment, you know, ops tempo right. because we were fighting a war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And at that point, they were deploying a lot of civilians because there just weren't enough active duty uh, soldiers, airmen, and Marines to uh, do the mission that we were trained to do, which was basically counterintelligence, criminal investigation, and interrogations. Um, so I ended up deploying nine times um, from about 2003 until 2011 was okay. my last true deployment. During those deployments, it was pretty heated. Because once you put a uniform on and you go overseas and you're doing direct action missions, there's not any real differentiation between civilian law enforcement and active duty military. The enemy looks at everybody the same and they're right, trying to kill right, you yeah. just the same, yeah. right? So <clears throat> after going down uh, that road and, and really loving it and coming back and uh, got a lot of great training from it, uh, got to deploy to all kind of different countries all over the world between Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, North Africa, uh, down in South and Central America and Colombia, um, over in uh, East Asia and the Philippines, um, just all over the world, man, um, doing great work and uh, really enjoyed it. But some of the experiences that I had from that or those original deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, really left some heavy imprints. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of direct action mission back then. Um, part of the uh, assignment that I particularly had was an interrogator. Um, so I was uh, a mission interrogator, uh, and we were going after high-value al-Qaeda targets at the time and American hostage, uh, American citizen hostages that al-Qaeda had okay, taken in gotcha. Iraq specifically. Um so at that point, you know, we were in a lot of firefights. We had a lot of bombs dropped on us, in us, around us, um, had mortars walked in on me, you know, one particular uh, mission we were on, um, had a sniper take a headshot at me and literally Damn. missed my head by just inches behind me. I was actually standing to where there was a car right here. I was doing a field interrogation on an Al-Qaeda member, um, trying to follow, find some follow-on targets. And then just out of the blue, man, I hear the bullet ricochet right behind me and then the crack of the gun. Man. Um, so it, it was just, man, it was wild. It yeah. was absolutely wild to be a civilian, basically cop, federal criminal investigator over there in the mix like that, but bringing what we do to the fight, you know. Uh, so, so it was great. But at the same time, uh, lost some buddies over there. Uh, not everybody made it back home. Uh, that, that was a struggle. Um, coming back home and then being in that community that I was in, um, everybody was the best of the best of what they did. Gotcha. It didn't matter what they did. Everything from being an operator to the guy that slipped, swept the floor, you were expected to be the best at what you did. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't have to be necessarily a jack of all trades, but ever, whatever your area of responsibility was, you were expected to be the best out of it. So, 
it was also a challenge after working in that type of environment for years to come back and integrate back into normal society, normal workspace, you know, family, yeah. you know, just friends, just people that you're around in an every given day uh, uh, basis to where you can't try to hold that type of expectation, but now it's ingrained in you. So that's usually a struggle uh, to try to figure out how to deal with that. Well, so, yeah, and I want to get to all that, but I have a few questions yeah, yeah. on the on the earlier, earlier on front. Um, so most people um, go to the military, and then later sometimes they'll transition to law enforcement, but you did it the other way around where you were in right. law enforcement X amount of years. And then you went and, and you were deployed with active military military. So like, how does that work? Like, do you think that, um, having so much field experience, do you think that I gave you an edge, you know, like dealing with certain situations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say, so being in local law enforcement, um, I, I believe that that is absolutely the bread and butter and basis of any type of law enforcement or investigative experience, right? Because if you're out there working just basic uniform patrol, yeah. you're making traffic stops, you're encountering people on a daily basis, whether it's just cold stops, showing up to a domestic violence call, it doesn't matter what it is, but literally your job all day, every day is to interact with the public more often than not, the da the more dangerous side of the public. Right. So you develop a self-awareness if you're going to survive in that career field to where you, you read body language, you read people and how they're acting and how they're doing um, for your own safety and, and the safety of the people around you. So after years of doing that, you don't, I don't think you even realize it, but you develop this sixth sense yeah. about you as a law enforcement officer that then when you're put in other situations, and, and I'll take it a step further, not just with the, the you know, overseas activity type things, you could juxtapose that on, on business, yeah, you know, running right. businesses and doing things like that, um, that you'd be surprised how much those skills actually come into play there. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, that set me up and gave me a, a leg ahead of, say, even my active duty counterparts that had never had just those years of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of encounters right. in a law enforcement. They're just jumping capacity. into basic training straight into, you know, right. deployment, you know, that's right. You know, so yeah, I just, I thought about that. I said, that's interesting to think about my wife's um, currently police officer. Yeah. I mean, right. it's just <clears throat> interesting how you never know what you're going to get every single day. No day is ever the same. That's right. And you absolutely have no idea what you're walking into every single you know time you get a call either, you know, which, right. which, trains your brain on a different level than most people, you know, right. have to, you know, as far as how you react with things and, um, how you deal with emotional trauma, you know, et cetera. Absolutely. And, um, but yeah, so while you were over there, is there, you know, I know you don't want to get into details of stuff. Cause I mean, that's kind of, you know, I'm sure classifications and all like that, but like you were doing interrogation, this is the time we're like waterboarding people and, right. you know, doing all kind of heavy shit to get information from these guys to figure out who they're, quote unquote leaders are right. 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 Is that, is that what happens? <laughs> there were, you know, um, there were in, you know, there's what's called enhanced interrogation techniques. Right. Um, I think waterboarding, um, really, uh, I, I think that was really sensationalized gotcha. and there's other interrogation techniques that I personally feel are far more effective, um, than waterboarding and, and different, you know, um, uh, physical stimuli, if what, you will. What would be some examples? Um, well, again, that comes down to, let's, let's take it back to what you said a minute ago yeah. about being a law enforcement officer right. on the streets, right? It takes a certain skill to walk up to somebody on a traffic stop and basically get them to confess to you on the side of the road that they've got a couple of kilos of cocaine in the car, right? That's for real prison time. Yeah. But if, if you're a street officer and you're worth your salt, especially if you're an interdiction or a narcotics patrol you know, type officer, that's going to be a, a skill that you develop to be able to read that body language, talk to somebody, basically conduct a field interrogation on them, keeping them calm at the same time. You're not ramping it up as an individual and you're basically, you know, Jedi mind tricks, if you will. Um, to get this individual in a comfort zone, build a rapport with them to where they literally tell you something that's going to put them in prison. Okay. Right. 
Interrogation is no different, okay. you know, whether you're talking about an Al-Qaeda member or anybody else. Every individual has different motivations for wanting to tell the truth, you know. And usually someone in um, a heightened state of fear or a heightened state of pain, um, you may get information from that individual, but it's probably not going to be highly accurate information. Because you think about it, if somebody's hurting the hell out of you, you're going to tell them whatever you think they want to hear. Exactly. Stop. Exactly. Yeah. You, you see what well, I'm yeah. Saying? Then how do you differ- differentiate that from the truth? Right. I would say the technique that you use, right. certain techniques, usually a mental conversational technique um, is more uh, effective than, um, you know, a, a pain technique. Well, let's is that, say. Is let's that- say sleep deprivation. Yeah, right. Got you. Uh, sleep deprivation is a you know a technique, and you know we all know that if you've been up for two or three days straight and you're dog tired, man, somebody's liable to ask you anything, and your brain's just not processing fast enough because it's fatigued that you yeah, you know you just it. throw something out there and you're like, whoa, I might not should have said that. Well, right? so like, is, does it get muddled whenever you have an interpreter though? Okay. How does that work? So what you want is a translator. A translator, excuse me. Yeah. No, no, yeah. That's, a, that's a huge difference to right, make because right. there is a difference between an interpreter right. and a translator. Right. It's two different jobs, right? Uh, a translator is going to translate verbatim, word for word, what we say. Okay. okay? An interpreter is somebody who more works for the Department of State that knows local customs and courtesies and different things like that. And they may take what a, dipl- a U.S. diplomat says and interpret that in a different way gotcha. to make sure we don't offend the other gotcha. side or different gotcha. things like yeah. that. The translator piece is very important for us in law enforcement interrogation because if I'm playing mental chess with you, I need exactly, exactly. what I said That's what I was relayed at. to the individual, yeah. not what an individual thinks I want them to say. Yeah. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. That, that was a huge question as soon as you said that. I was like, okay, well, if we're making – if we're, you know, this is all verbal, then how does it not get muddy? You know right, what I mean? In between, right. like – the dialect and the form of how the conversation's going and is it showing they're showing excitement here or fear here you know all those elements is that still going to be able to be transposed you know oh absolutely because body language is the one universal language across the right right Um, there's a couple of cultural things you have to you know be aware of uh to accurately read body language but for the most part it's it's pretty pretty on point yeah because i feel like that um like you said, it's been sensationalized. It makes sense, like the movies and Hollywood, right. where all they show is the gruesome tactics of how you get information from people, you know. And I was like, man, that just can't be all what it looks like. You know what I mean? Right. No. I, like I said, I think that's mainly movies and sensationalized yeah. down that road. Yeah. Well, so all that, you know, going through all those things and, you know, being in the, I guess, being in basically the high, the height of battle for how many years were you total deployed? Uh, seven? Yeah, it was about so, seven, seven years. Yeah. So like being that, just living with that, does that become a constant to where it's not, because I've noticed this in life, um, especially as I get older, like, and nowhere near any situations you've been in, but just how you live a fast paced lifestyle and then you right. slow down. And then how, what it does to your brain, you know, what it does to your brain and how you react to things. And like, you know, you, you may not realize that that's a constant comfort for you that you've lived in so long. And then you get transferred back into, you know, a regular day to day. What, what happens there? Right. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, it can be a rough path. Um, it can be a long, rough path or it can be a short, rough path. If you figure it out and you, if you adjust fire, if you will, um, to acclimate to what you need to do. Um, I think, you know, if you talk about high performance individuals, um, to be in those type of positions, you have to be some type of a high performance individual. Mm-hmm. I'm not labeling myself as that. Uh, I, 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 I've walked in the shadows of giants, man. Um, I've been around some of the most lethal, badass dudes that the U S government can, can produce. Um, I'm not that guy. I was the guy that walked in the shadow of those guys. So, but when you work in that type of environment and then you come back and you have to learn how to apply that to daily life. Okay. You, you, you're still going to be a high performance individual. You're still going to be high speed, but you got to figure out how to be a high speed dad, how to be a high speed husband, how to be a high speed friend, how to be a high speed, you know, confidant, colleague, you know, your work environment. You can translate that everywhere you go. 
you just have to direct that energy and understand that it's just as um, beneficial or important and get enough self-satisfaction out of those different places that you put it now rather than overseas catching the bad guys or trying to rescue American citizen hostages that have been captured overseas. So um, everybody struggles on their own path, you know, Um, but, but every, everybody, you know, hopefully gets to a good resolution with it. What did you go through and how, how did that adjustment work for you? (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was probably a little bumpy. Um, and I would say, you know, dude, my wife is a Spartan wife. Okay. Um, I don't care who you are as a dude. If you don't have a strong woman at home backing you, you're only going to go so far. All right. Firm believer in that. So during those deployments or in, in, in training, it's not just deployments, it's constant training. So for six or seven years, I was gone six to nine months out of the year from the house, whether it was either overseas location or a training location. I was actually only at home sleeping in my own bed around my family three to four or five months of the year gotcha. at most. Um, it takes a strong woman to deal with that. It takes strong children to try to deal with that and not break a family apart, Right. So when you translate into, you know, how did I deal with it? Um, I would say that, you know, 11 months out of the year, we did what we had to do, right? She did what she had to do as a wife. My kids did what they had to do as kids. And I did what I had to do as a husband and an American citizen serving the people. For one month out of the year, we took it for ourselves. And for that one month out of the year, uh, we have a place where we hunt over Mississippi and we've got a cabin way back way back in the woods. I mean, it literally it's seven, seven miles on like 35 inch super swampers to even get back. There. Yeah. <laughs> you load everything up at one time, all your groceries, everything you need. And we go back there and live for like a month. Right. Um, we have running water, we have electricity, uh, but that's about it. There's no internet. There's no TVs in there. there there's nothing of that. And for that month, we would live back there and we would hunt and fish and just, you know, spend time as a cohesive family and that's where we would really bond and, and build our relationships and spend that quality time together day in and day out, almost living a completely different type of life. Yeah. But just for that one month, man, it made a huge difference for us as a family. Yeah, it makes sense because even the people that may do that, do things as a family together now, it's all, it's junked up with other things, like Absolutely. other variants, other distractions, you know. Whether it be like the kids having phones, or, you know, or act, you know, making sure they're participating, some kind of communication with friends during that time and all that. But yeah, to, to imagine a solid thirty days of just you and your family interacting without any form of stressor, right, does seem like something to be powerful in that situation. I guess you know. Yeah. Well, that that leads into a, a a big deal because that ultimately is what I believe. My wife and I both believe saved our marriage, and um, our two oldest kids are twenty nine and twenty five. I think twenty six now, um, and they don't hate me. They don't hate me as a dad because I man, I, I was am was and still am. I'm, I'm a strict dude at home. Yeah. You know, uh, my kids have right and left limitations, and uh, we believe in corporal punishment. And, you know, we're going to walk the line and we're going to take care of business. But we still have four little ones at home. We, too, have two very successful grown ones out of the house. Um, But that family relationship can be toxic at times in our community uh, because of how we interact. Right. You know, it's very sharp. It's very pointed. um, Got you. Got you. And and, everything's said with meaning. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, But but that that time out there. So. Um, later in my career, um, after I had moved into some management roles, um, I realized I was having a problem adjusting, you know, not only at, at home a little bit, but more so even in the work environment that I was in and trying to operate outside of that. Everybody that you deal with is the best of what they do at any given time. Right. Yeah. And just understanding and accepting other colleagues is who they are and their personalities and, and faults that come along with it. Um, so in doing so, I realized that I was probably struggling with that more than what I should. Um, so I sought some help. And, uh, and during that, it, one thing led to another. And I actually ended up being diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. Um, okay. And the traumatic brain injury actually came from an operation uh, that we were on. And I ended up having two 500-pound U.S. bombs out of our own plane 
uh, dropped on me and a fire team on a location that was literally 30 yards, 30 meters uh, from our location. And uh, we should have been dead. How did I mean, that happen? That, that was a communication a long night. issue, or like yeah, that that was a long night. Um, we were prosecuting an objective uh, overseas, and it was one that went bad. It didn't go well. Uh, when the team breached the door, they immediately received fire from barricaded subjects inside the house. Um, we had two guys go down at that point. Um, they ended up surviving non-life threatening uh, issues there. Um, but at that point they knew that, you know, they had to retreat back to the perimeter, uh, because just continuing into that was a hornet's nest. Mm -hmm. And when they were back and back from that position, uh, one of the team members actually, uh, took an RPG to his back yeah. from an upper level window and the RPG an RPG has to travel so far, uh, before it can detonate. It's a safety mechanism, uh, on the RPGs. Evidently, this one didn't travel far enough or it was faulty. I don't know. We didn't inspect it. Um, but it didn't, ultimately ended up impaling him because it was shot from an upper-level window, and it went down in his back above his body armor. Holy um, shit. So if you can imagine an yeah. RPG rocket yeah. stuck inside you know, your buddy's body cavity here. Um, so he went down. They drug him outside, got the medic on him. We're suppressing fire on the house. We're starting to take fire from other locations around. So we're suppressing fire outwards. Um, they called in an up ordered uh, ambulance from a Marine encampment not far by. Um, that particular, it hit an IED in the road on the way in, uh, so disabled it. Um, and remember, we still had two other guys that got shot. Right. And they're much less life-threatening, you know, uh, wounds. But at the same time, you know, we needed to get them medevaced out as well. And um, during that period, our guy um, who took the RPG in the back, um, he ended up dying. And uh, one of the reasons what he died from was the RPG went in his chest cavity, so his lungs didn't have room to expand. So he smothered, he asphyxiated because his lungs couldn't expand because there was an RPG in his back. Um, but the medic wouldn't let us pull it out because it's a live ordinance. Right. And then it could kill it could everybody. Blow up every, yeah. Okay. Yeah. makes sense. So that's a situation where you watch that happen. And, uh, and that's tough dude. Cause you're saying, Oh, so to save my ass, you know, which done. if we had pulled it out, don't know if he would have lived or died. I, exactly, I don't, yeah. th there's no guarantee that that would have saved his life, but you don't forget something like that. Yeah. Right. So anyway, so the up armored ambulance coming in, you know, it, it was disabled due, an I, due to an IED. Um, they called in the the helo support force that supported us. Um, those guys are bad to the bone. Uh, they can do with a helicopter that just things nobody else in the world can do. <laughs> um, they came in, black, pitch black dark, middle of the night, landed in a, a, a high risk area uh, for them to land in. But at that point, we were able to get the three, you know, uh, wounded guys to there. And me and a fire team were suppressing fire down a, a street as they went down to move them to the helicopters. They came out. They were supposed to come back, tap us out on the way back. And they went one block, you know, the other direction from us and went up. And they thought we had already pulled chalks and were gone. So when they rallied back up with the CO, a few blocks, you know, danger close distance for that ordinance, somehow they did a head count and got a green light. Um, and the fog of war like that, everything's stressful and that just shit happens. Yeah. You know, um, and the, the commander on the ground gave the thumbs up to the birds to drop the bombs. Dang. And we were still there. And I, I still to this day remember, you know, I heard the, I heard the jets and I remember thinking in my head, that's not good. Yeah. And literally not one or two seconds later, it's just boom, this huge explosion to our back, which was the house that we had hit that had all those bad guys in it. Um, it rocked us forward, uh, fire teams on each side. It, you know, I, I, it discombobulates me, you know? Um, and, and once I kind of came back to my senses, I never knocked out. I never went unconscious, but it, it definitely rung my bell, uh, pretty bad and, uh, figured out what was going on and, and, and kind of realized what had happened. And we carry, you know, these IR strobes with us. Uh, so I reached on the back of my helmet and turned that IR strobe on to let them know like, Hey, we're like good guys are here, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, um, 
they they saw that in the sky, but before they can even relay it down, um, the the ground commander had actually sent a team back in there to recover us and our bodies. Like he knew he he just knew that like at least some of us were dead, right? Because uh, there was no way we should have survived that. And to be honest, none of, none of us were really hurt, other than the damages, the TBI type damages that we sustained from the concussion. That I actually didn't go to get diagnosed for for the next uh, that was almost ten years later uh, when I actually got the diagnosis and treatment for it. Did you have? Um, were you just kind of telling yourself you were okay this whole time? Oh yeah, man. I, man, dude, yeah. I, I was I was young and what I age? Was, what age were you then? Uh, twenty. So I was about twenty seven, twenty eight, okay. twenty eight, twenty nine. Uh, man, I was ten foot tall, bulletproof. Right, right. Man, you couldn't tell me nothing. You know, I, I was in the gym. You know, three or four hours every day. You know, I could get out there and run five, six miles like it was nothing. You know, run it with body armor on. Yeah. You know, all pull ups were done with body armor on. You know, if you did, a, if you're doing pull ups, you didn't have body armor on. You, you know, you were, you were weak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, you, you, we stayed so hyped up and amped up all the time just for what we did and the training that we did and the evolutions that we did. Um, there was no time to be half stepping. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying. You can't even relax. Like that's a high stress scenario to where there's no relaxation at all. Even if you feel like you're in a comfort zone, you better not get too comfortable, right? right. You know? Oh yeah. It seems like that just that constant, <clears throat> that just complete transformation back to back to normal society. You know, just seems to be crazy. And that's what I think. Well, talking to you about it brings that to mind. It's just you know, so many people battling with this thing. You know, right. that don't know how to deal with it, or that are lying to themselves, or just as men just refuse to admit. That's right. I don't want to be a pussy, so I'm not going to say that you know something's wrong with me. You know, that's right. And I see, I've seen it a lot in you know people I know who's went to the military and come back. You know, been deployed. Um, I've seen it a lot in people that you know work for law enforcement agencies. You know, and they don't realize they're having these issues, and and it's not talked about enough. You know, right. And that's one of the things I go back to that one month of the year that I spent with the family, right? And during the uh, counseling that I received once I was diagnosed with the PTSD, that came up. The counselor kind of drug that out. It's not something that I was really thinking about to put out there. Yeah. But the counselor kind of drug it out. And uh, they ended up telling me that, you know, basically I was self-medicating. You know, that's what I unconsciously uh, found to to keep my sanity and to, and to try to help keep my family together. And that was a real epiphany for me because I would, once I realized it and I looked back on it, you know, hindsight's so much clearer. Yeah. Um, and, and probably a more mature mind, you know, overall. And I realized how much that did help me. You know, my wife and I were both like, we've got to help other people with this. You know, this is a big deal. This can really change lives. Um, and in 2016, we actually started a nonprofit called Conservations for Persons with Disabilities. And through that nonprofit, our mission is to provide outdoor therapeutic recreation uh, for disabled persons, but we primarily concentrate on law enforcement and first responders. And the reason that's our target audience is just like me. So for our active duty military, there's a lot of safety nets for those guys and gals as they go through their careers because they're expected to be exposed to that type of, right. to, of war. And that type of uh, in-depth of uh, nasty activity, if you will. Um, and for us civilians, there's none of that. There was no safety net. I was never post-deployment put through a process to figure out, did something mentally break or get damaged in me or physically with TBI? Um, there were no questionnaire. I mean, literally nothing. We were redeployed back home, put into our home unit, and expect, you know, just... You yeah, know, go to work like yep. normal, right? Yep. Um, and once I realized how scary that is, you know, just not for me in, in DOD piece, but just in law enforcement as a whole, um, I love our veterans and I support them. They're my brothers and sisters that I've walked with for over 20 years in my professional life at this point. But there are just tons and tons of programs and funding out there for them to help support them. And I want them to get every bit of it that they can. But I do realize that our law enforcement community is very much underserved in that same piece because, you know, we just we are those quiet professionals that just that, like you said, uh, the men and women of law enforcement, there's an expectation that you just come to work and deal with what you deal with and you come home because that's what you get paid. To and do. you're supposed to just shut, shut it off. Right. right. You know, and, it, and how does it bleed into, and that's, that's another, do you, I don't even know if you cause being 
an advocate for this. I don't know if you have any of these percentages or numbers off the top of your head, but like, how does it, what would you say if you had to, you know, at least take a guess on how many people were affected, you know, percentage wise right. that I don't have any numbers off the right, top of my head. Right. They are on our website right. at uh, CPD. I think it's CPD.org. Um, we do have them out there on our website, yeah. but they are actually higher than the active duty military side of the house uh, as far as suicide and divorce rates uh, within law enforcement. It's not tracked as closely because if you think about it, all active duty military other than the National Guard and Reserve is on the federal side of the house. The feds have a lot of, lot more money to track right, things to run, like that. Yeah, yeah. When you start talking about small police departments, small sheriff's departments, small city marshal you know, offices and things like that, nobody's really tracking you know, the suicides and divorces and different things like that that occur within that community to really show the numbers on a grand scale like you can with the active duty military. Yeah. So I don't have those numbers, but I can tell you they're really high. Yeah, I mean, I would assume so. And, and like, there, there's, we've talked about this stuff, you know, on this show and with multiple people. Like, that lack of funding, <clears throat> like, this whole bullshit we just went through over the past few years and, and, and on the political front of, you know, right. saying defund the police officers, they're already defunded. Right. They don't get enough funding as it is unless you're in a huge metropolitan, you know, department. Then, <clears throat> then they're getting adequate funding sometimes, I would think. But there's still no funding for the psychological side of it. Right. You know, there's no, there's no training for, you know, how to react in certain scenarios after you're in that, you know, aside for what you qualify once a year with a gun, but you're not sitting down with a shrink, you know, or anyone like every year and running some kind of panel, you know, I mean, maybe at the larger departments, but I know that not, not here, you know, not in rural areas, you know? Right. And that's something that's like, doesn't get talked about enough. Right. Yeah. And I feel like you guys are pushing awareness for all these things, but I just wanted to bring that up because I know that's an issue. You know, a lot of times there, you know, people expect so much from a police officer, especially just a local, you know, one that's on patrol because they just, th- I guess they see them as someone who's more qualified than the regular civilian, which in most cases they are, right. but they're still not adequately, you know, equipped as they should be in my right. opinion. You know what I mean? Well, if you, if you get into the psyche of a law enforcement officer, if you think about, number one, uh, my, my late father, one of the things he told me early in my law enforcement career, and he wasn't a cop. He, he wasn't law enforcement. He was an engineer. Okay. Um, so he, he said something really profound that uh, very early in my career that's always stuck with me is being a law enforcement officer, especially uniform patrol, no matter how mundane a call you go to is, literally the person who called you there dialed 911 to get yeah, you there. Right. And at that point, that is the most important thing going on in their world, right? And then you look at it, so so that's how you should treat them. That's ultimately what he was telling me, was be compassionate right. for the people that you come in contact with. Because after my first few years of law enforcement, my father realized the, the tragedies and the, and the human evil that I was being exposed to on a daily basis when at the same time being a public servant and having to, you know, you think he, see, he saw people. that just in the way you changed and in interacting with him. Uh, I wouldn't say interacting with him, but interacting in general. Gotcha. I, I like just watching it. you. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I'll give you an example is, you know, just like you said, a regular patrol officer, um, they get one call and it's to the local emergency room to go in there. And there's a six or seven year old, female child in there that's been sexually assaulted by a family member or a neighbor or somebody like that. And I mean, tragically, you know, to where that child is probably mentally and physically damaged for the rest of their life. As much of a professional as you want to remain, there is an emotional state that seeing something like that puts you in that you as a human can't control. All right. You can disguise it, but you can't control it. All right. But your job is to document that, take as the best report that you can, hand that over to the investigators so that they can use the judicial system to try to get that child justice. Right. That's your job. Right. right? So you take that report, you document it, and you get detectives up there and you do your job. You go back 10-8, and the next call that you get is from somebody in the the more upscale part of town that is mad as a wet hen because their neighbors next door are playing the music too loud. Exactly, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Literally, 20 minutes ago, you were dealing with this child who was physically assaulted to the point of irreparable damage, and now you're dealing with another citizen of the community 
who the most important thing in their life is this loud music next door and they expect you to handle it. Yeah. The human in you really wants to give this individual a tongue lashing that they have no idea what, you know, is important in life right now. And they should just really be happy that they have a roof over their head and this really isn't a big deal next door. Yeah. Right. Uh, because of what you just saw, but that's not how you can, that's not how you yeah. handle it. The expectation as a law enforcement professional is that you handle that citizen um, with kid gloves and make sure that they understand that you are responsive to their concerns and do what you can with this neighbor next door about turning this music down, okay? And you deal with that day after day after day after year after year, okay? I don't care if you're Superman. That changes you. Of course. Do you think it creates some type of numbness that you can't, like, treat you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that you're going to be changed yeah. for life, you know? I think it's I think it's up to each individual, each law enforcement professional, to give themselves, figure out what their self-care is along the way yeah. to keep that from happening. Hopefully, it's not the bottle. You know, hopefully... That was something I wanted to bring up. It's not yeah. the pills. Yeah. You know, hopefully, it's a more constructive, you know, way to get there, whether it's gym time whether it's hunting and fishing, whether it's coaching Little League, you know, find a way to break out because, you know, what we end up doing is we all gravitate towards each other and we have this dark humor and we make these jokes <laughs> yeah, about yeah, things yeah. that normal people <laughs> no one else are like, understands, yeah. holy cow, yeah. how do you, how is that even funny to you, yeah. right? But that is, that is a, a coping mechanism yeah. that we use to deal with that stuff. Uh, but if we just gravitate into our own little circles and that's where we stay, that's not healthy. We have to unplug from that and and go out into the community and, and build relationships with normal people, okay, um, that that helps keep us normal. But then there's the trust issue with that too because, again, you see the evilness of this world day in and day out that you don't want the common citizens to see. You, you're part of your job is to to keep them from knowing that that exists. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, there's suppress a panic and or something out there that says, you know, uh, we fight the or I fight the evil you pretend doesn't exist. You know, and that's fine. That that should be okay. Um, but it becomes really hard to trust after you see certain things. Um, it it uh, uh, so grown up adult normal relationships become difficult, and you have to work at them. Yeah, but I think that's part of each professional law enforcement officer self-care that they should be looking at. And it's things like that that we talk about at Conservation for Persons with Disabilities on the trips that we go on, whether it's hunting, fishing, camping, hiking. Um, part of that is like sitting around a campfire at night, grilling some steaks, and just kind of talking about, hey, bro checking, uh, sister checking. You yeah. know, are you okay? No, are you really okay? Right. You when know? you have to be able to relate before you can have the conversation right. right like sitting down across from a psychologist or a counselor who's never been through anything like that it almost seems seems mundane you know yeah. like if you think right. about it and i could see where a lot of people just throw their hands up and say this is bullshit it's not helping me you know right. what i mean but if you can connect with someone who's been through something then you can have a conversation where it, it actually seems like they give a shit right because they've been through the same thing yeah, or something absolutely. similar similar well, it comes back to that trust issue right yeah uh because number one if i open up to you you may judge me right, right? Um, number two, if I open up to you, then that's I'm admitting there's a chink in my armor. And mentally, I go to work every day having to know that there's no chink in my armor because if it is, it could it, it could kill me. Yeah. You know, my armor has to be bulletproof every day. So you have to find the, the balance, which seems to be an, I guess it's an everyday struggle, right? Absolutely. I mean, it has to be. It's a subliminal struggle, though, yeah. right? It, it, it's total mental and psychological. And if you don't address the struggle, then the struggle just continues, you know, and, and it could be good. It could be bad. You know, we all, it, and it doesn't matter if you're law enforcement or an engineer or a marketing guy, we all have professional stressors yeah. day in and day out. We all handle them differently based on our personalities. And sometimes we have better days than other days. Everybody has good days and bad days. Well, right? yeah, I've, I've said this before. It's been a conversation. I know you're going to understand it. Like you only, you're, you've only been through the worst thing you've ever been through. And right. that's different per every person. Like I've come from a crazy life before the life I am now. So 
little things that bother the everyday person in my you know field of work or whatever doesn't bother me, you know, just because I've right. seen way worse shit, right? Right. But like, <clears throat> you, have, I guess, especially being in you know some a field like law enforcement, so you have to realize that walking in that this person doesn't have the same lifestyle as the one you just talked to. So handling that with compassion seems to be yeah a a thing <laughs> that's going to be difficult. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then and then you package all that up and you go home. Right? That's the next thing, right? How does that work? Because right. like you, you and you mentioned this too. Like, did you have a problem coming back in transition? Did you have a problem with alcohol or anything at first? Do you think? Right. Or, or do I you wouldn't talk? say a, I wouldn't say a problem with right. alcohol, but uh, but I did drink right. and I would uh, use it for relaxation. Yeah. you know, mode. Um, and, uh, they, but my wife and I are very, very close and, you know, I, she, I would ask her, I'm like, Hey babe, I'm good. Right. You know, right. do you see anything that I'm doing, you know, having an adverse, you know, impact on our relationship, the kids or anything like that. And she, trust me, she'd let me know, you know, right. she, she'd straight tune me up, set me straight. If she's like, no, you're going too far. Or, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, physically physiologically no alcohol is good right right you're gently poisoning the body right. to receive right. the right. effect yeah. that you're getting right but you know if you're doing it to the point of blacking out you can't remember things after a night of drinking you know um you can't control yourself um everybody's you know there's happy drunks and angry drunks right. you know um drunk man speaks what a sober man thinks you know that type of thing um i, I definitely think that if you're 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 you know uh going into those kind of realms and categories, um, those are indicators. Yeah. Right. Um, but either way you look at it, it is not a healthy, um, um, coping mechanism, if you will. But it seems to be a lot of people's, that's what they turn to first. I mean, and that's, that's in all aspects of life and people dealing with trauma, you know, and issues, you know, um, we've seen it in multiple cases in multiple professions, you know, um, I, of course I love an occasional drink, you know, but you know, it's just, it's, I know that's one path that you, like you said, you mentioned in the other path is being prescribed antidepressants and just thinking that's going to fix right. what's wrong too. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. That's not a healthy one. And I've never been a pill guy. Yeah, I'm me, very, um, I'm very yeah. fortunate for that. Yeah. Um, I've just, even as a child, you know, grew at the house we grew up in, you know, natural remedies a lot and stuff like that. So, uh, I've never had to fight those demons. Um, but I know, uh, you know, again, for me, it's the outdoors. Yeah. That's what I always come back to. You know, How did you know that though? Did you know, did you just, did well, you relate that back to growing up and yeah. saying this is something? Well, like- I grew up in, in kind of a rural Mississippi setting. Yeah. And, uh, so the outdoors was hunting fishing was natural to me. It was a part of our DNA of who we were and what we did and, you know, bragging rights at school and different things like that. But because of it at an early age, I learned to appreciate the serenity of the woods, being by yourself in the outdoors or being with a good friend in the outdoors and just enjoying God's creation, right? Um, let all the other outside world and stressors, whether it's, you know, girlfriend, football, schoolwork, you know, dad's mad because I didn't cut the grass on time, whatever it was. Yeah. I could go out in the woods with a twenty two or a shotgun or whatever I was doing and and all that went away. So I think that was ingrained in me at an early age. Um, but, uh, so, so I just naturally gravitated towards it and, uh, and I've always, uh, been there and, you know, and I think I've, uh, the, my kids have grown up around it. So now they do the same thing, you know, and I see that. So I think it's all to what you're exposed to in life. And I say, again, my thing's hunting and fishing, right? But at CPD, we don't just concentrate on that because not everybody grew up doing that. Right. But camping, boating, ATV riding, trail running or walking, just anything that gets you out in the outdoors, you know, um, uh, that, that's the reason we, we, uh, plan our activities in such a wide breadth of the things to do out in the outdoors. Yeah. And I think that's something that's important. I grew up doing those things, as you said, same thing with me. And, um, I've gotten in a busy state of my life the past probably eight years and probably still for the next five, like to where I'm not I haven't really longed for that, but I feel it. I feel it coming to where I right. want to start slowing down. Right now, my vice is barbecuing and stuff. For you know, that's what I that's do a right. lot on the weekends. But still, that's attributed to doing something outside, and and a, there's a calming nature in it when you have an activity, and it's you know what I mean. You're yeah. enjoying the fresh air, and you're you're still creating some like that. Food always creates 
you know, community, right. you know, so that does it for me right now. But I feel like I, I feel it itching back on every now and then. Like I'll still hunt a couple of times a year. I go to my buddy's lease or whatever, but there is something about it that if no one's ever experienced it, they, they don't understand. And especially if someone who's been in a, um, urban lifestyle their whole life, you know, and haven't been able to like unplug, you know, right. however it may be, it's, it's a huge, there's a huge form of, um, man, just serenity. Like you said earlier, I mean, that's, that's yeah. a great word for it. There really is. I mean, it's, a, it's something that you can't prescribe. I mean, it's something that's, you know, just organic, I guess. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, but I think you guys, yeah, I think you have a good mission. I think that what you're doing is, it's something that directly related to that demographic. That's not talked about enough, raising awareness for that one, and then figuring out ways to treat that too. That's natural, you know, not, not giving someone some type of medication or, right. you know, or feeding them bullshit or, you know, acting like, you know, bringing some voice in here to act like they know what they're going through. You know what I mean? That's like right. kind of thing, you know, I think that's all, it's just, it's done too much and there's no, you know, real, effect there you know well i think we're i think as a community we're waking up you know and realizing and there's a lot of us uh some of us older some of us younger um that that realize that these issues are out there and that we want to help uh both you and i have a friend in common andrew phillips yeah yeah you know andrew and he has you know a career in law enforcement that he's kind of stepped away from right now and one of the reasons he stepped away from is he found a passion for counseling, mm-hmm. you know, first responders that have been in crisis situations, very similar to the mission of CPD. Um, and he's taken a large role in our nonprofit at this point. Um, and he's going back to school to get his degree in counseling to where he can actually be a professional counselor for law enforcement first responders. I mean, that's going to be his target. Right. And he, right? and he was the boots on the huge. ground at some point. So he can, yep. that's, that's real, you know, real conversation there. That's adequate. I would say for that field, I will say in, in law enforcement, not always, but your ability from a counseling type perspective to actually help someone is going to exponentially increase when you have that, uh, street cred to be exactly. able to yeah. relate to yeah. them right off the bat. Well, it's just like right? a military, right? I mean, if you're talking to someone that's been in battle multiple times, you're going to listen to them, right? right? You know, or you're going to, you know, at least care that they, what they have to say, cause you know, it's probably going to be beneficial. <laughs> you Absolutely. Know? That's something that, you know, that's something that, I've, you know, in any walk of life or any business structure or anything, you're going to respect someone who's got skin in the game. Yep. Every time. Yeah. Well, time. I mean, Aside from that, what else, man? I mean, what else is there left, you know, that about CPD? You guys, what do you have brewing? What's going on? What's coming up? Right. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's a lot going on as far as, like I said, Erica and I started it back in 2016. But with us both working full-time jobs, having the kids, we didn't have a whole lot of time to put towards it. Um, and we were self-funded. Uh, right. My late father and my wife and I had funded it basically until this point. Um, we've been put in a position over the last six or eight months, especially being able to bring Andrew on board. Uh, man, he has just grown it more in the past six months than what we were able to do in those first five or so years uh, because he's really been able to focus and concentrate on it. Um, we, uh, just had our first official, uh, fundraiser at RTTS gun range, RTSS gun range, um, over in Texas, uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before that, or no, that was last weekend, kind of times blurring together. Um, they put on a three gun match out there and all, uh, entry fees, 100% of all entry fees, they donated to conservation of personal disabilities. Awesome. Um, so that was a huge deal for us just to kind of get out there and see what it was like to put on a fundraiser and to have them to support us and kind of sponsor us like that was a big deal. Um, kind of a harebrained idea. We got the opportunity, uh, here recently to acquire a Dodge Mammoth 1000, uh, which for the viewers who don't know, that is a Dodge uh, 1500 four-wheel drive pickup truck, right? The TRX edition right. that has their huge Hellcat motor in it yeah. from the factory. So from the factory, it has like 702 or 703 horsepower, which is a, that, that's yeah, a, that's insane. That's a, that's <laughs> a big, that's a fast truck, <laughs> yeah. okay, for a four-wheel drive. Um, but you know, just like always, you know, there's a place down in uh, Texas called Hennessy Performance. Yep. And Hennessy takes these Dodge TRXs and they do all kind of performance work to it to turn it into a thousand house horsepower truck. They put a larger supercharger on it. They upgrade the upper and lower pulleys. They upgrade the belt. 
Um, uh, they upsize the fuel injectors. They reprogram the motor, the computer on it. And literally, the truck that we have dynoed at 1,012 horsepower at the rear wheels. Yes, yeah, insane. So you're talking about a 15, a half ton truck on 37 inch mud tires that will smoke a Z06 vet. Yeah, that weighs like, what, okay. 7,000 pounds? Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, a vehicle that big and that heavy has no business being that yeah, bad. Yeah, it's insane, though. But it is bad yeah. in the bone. Yeah, it's awesome. But that said, uh, we had the uh, um, opportunity to acquire it for the nonprofit, um, and we bought it. I mean, we, we had to buy the truck, but we bought it uh, out under market value. And what we're trying to do is have a uh, kind of a sealed bid um, uh, not raffle, but uh, like an auction. Uh, yeah, sealed yeah. bid auction. Yeah. Uh, for the truck um, to really bring in what we're looking for is a, a big corporate donor, right? Uh, that at the end of the year, that the way it's going to work is the whoever gets the truck is going to get it. Whoever makes the most, the highest contribution uh, and donation to the nonprofit, right? So number one, we're a five hundred one c three, you know, IRS, you know, uh, nonprofit. So that money can be tax deductible, you right. know, towards their personal or business income. But on top of that, this is 2022. So this is the last year of the Trump accelerated depreciation plan. Okay. So when he came in in 2016, he began the accelerated depreciation to try to help, you know, boost the economy. But ultimately what that means is somebody could come in and buy the mammoth, uh, through the donation and write 100% of that off in their business expenses this year in 2022 tax year. So we feel like this is a real opportune time to go out there and get max funding for the truck. So these trucks right now, last time I checked, you can't buy one. Um, there's a waiting list at Hennessy. Um, if you actually want one of these trucks and the market price for the one that we have is 200,000. That's insane. Um, man. it's a, it's a straight hyper truck, Yeah, but that's with the, uh, stage two off-road kit and the mammoth 1000 package. So it basically has the top of the line of everything that, uh, Hennessy motorsports offers to enhance the Dodge TRX. Yeah. Um, truck has 300 and I think 24 miles on it. It's basically brand new. And those miles were actually put on it by Hennessy performance on the dyno, yeah. on the dyno yeah. and doing the track yeah. testing right. that they do for the vehicle. So it has literally no like road, road miles yeah, on yeah. it or yeah. owner miles, if you will. Um, so that's what the truck would cost if you went to buy one, if you could go buy one today. And we're actually hoping that the donation exceeds that because somebody actually has a passion for our cause at the same time. And they realize that it is a donation that is tax deductible, comes off the top, and they can do accelerated yeah, depreciation. It's a win-win win right? all over because you're yeah. getting the truck that you would have to wait a year or two on. That's right. You can write it off and you can donate to a cause that you that's care right. about. You know, So, yeah, it's a win-win all the way around. Yeah. So um, I don't want to name any of them right now because nobody's officially signed up, but right. we have some Dodge dealers um, that are looking at coming on board, uh, helping us with their marketing. The vehicle probably would be kept in their showroom, maybe you know transferred a couple of times. Right. But, but that's a big deal. Um, another one is uh, we have recently acquired CPD Ranch uh, in Casilla, Mississippi. That's Tallahatchie County, Mississippi. Um, it is uh, 847 acres. Uh, and it has a 9,000 square foot, 12 bedroom, 13 bath lodge. Uh, so each bedroom has its own in-suite full bathroom. And this is an opportunity that we had to pick this up um, to support the mission of the nonprofit. Uh, before, you know, we would bounce around and we'll still go to different locations, but this is where we're actually going to plant right. our conservations for persons with disability flag to where we have a property that we control. We control the schedule of. Um, we don't have to compete with other nonprofits or other organizations doing work. Uh, we can come in with our groups on their time when it's convenient um, so that we can, you know, serve as many people as we possibly can. Um, we, I can't tell you how excited we are about this. It is a uh, once-in-a-lifetime type opportunity that just um, we've been looking for it but really didn't realistically um, have a, a road, a path to success yeah. with it. Yeah. Uh, because that, it's a huge financial milestone, uh, to try to pick something like that up. And it, it uh, it kind of came to us and the Lord opened the path of 
you know, financial and we had a bank that backed us and we were in a financial position to where we could pick it up. Um, kind of a, a funny story or that maybe this is just how I feel about it. I don't know. But this property was actually, it was on the open market for sale. It wasn't a distressed sale or anything like okay. that, but it was actually owned by the U S Marshal service Okay. because it was seized by someone who was doing things that they shouldn't have done. They basically defrauded the government out of a lot of money. Like so the the document said to the tune of like five hundred million dollars. Gosh, okay. Wasn't just this one individual, right. it was multiple individuals that were accused of doing this and that were ultimately convicted. So as the US government often does, anything gained with illicit funds, um, they come back and they seize it. So this property was actually seized by the U.S. Attorney's Office through the U.S. Marshal Service and put on the market for sale. And that's where we actually picked it up. So I find it a little ironic that I spend 27 years putting bad guys in bad places and trying to hold the line for the citizens out there. And then at this point in juncture in my life, the Lord opened this door and almost put it out here on this silver platter to be able to pick this up in front of us um, from criminal, the, the fruits of criminal <laughs> yeah. activity that law enforcement caught, successfully prosecuted, and now we have the opportunity to use that for the good of law enforcement first responders. Yeah. That's, that's pretty awesome. That's ironic. It, like it worked. I mean, that, no, uh, that is. And, and so that's, and also Mississippi where that's interesting too, where it's back to where you grew up and where that's you right. guys were retreating to once a year too. Right. Yep. How, how close is it from where you were? So it's about two hours North of where I grew up in Vicksburg. Right. Mississippi. Okay. So that's, that's so gotta make it far. bittersweet too. Right. You know, it's just like one of those things where oh, yeah. it works out pretty well all the way around. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, and again, none of that was donated to the nonprofit. We right. literally you're, you're had to buy it on it, yeah. the open market and were in competing bids with just regular individuals trying to buy the property too. So that's one of the reasons we've never had a huge fundraising and solicitation mechanism before. Um, but that's how you and I ended up meeting was, yeah. you know, with your marketing company, we were like, man, we, we've got to get out there and shake the bushes yeah. because we just, you know, we just grabbed the grizzly bear. <laughs> we got to wrestle it down to the ground yeah. now, right? Yeah, we got to pay for this um, thing now. That's right. Yeah. So, so now we are actively out there, you know, looking for supporters and trying to really get get our mission out there to find other people that are passionate about supporting the law enforcement community. And I, let me say law enforcement, law enforcement, that, that that's our primary goal, right? But it is conservations for persons with disabilities. We've had disabled family members in our family before. And, uh, one main one, my cousin, Tony, he's passed away now. Uh, but Tony was disabled his entire life, right? Um, his parents handled him until they passed away. When they passed away, my parents took him and, you know, they had him in their home until he passed away. Um, but seeing the stress that that causes on a family, man, they need help too. Yeah. From the outside looking in, um, people who are fortunate enough not to have any disabled family members really have no idea how stressful that is as a family and how you know, beneficial having a place like CPD Ranch to be able to come with their family member, let their hair down, not be worried about where they're going and how they're going all the time, and uh, unplug from those stresses of the world, the work, the school, the therapy, different things like that, and just come out there and relax for a little bit. Uh, we're very passionate about that as well. So I, I want to make sure that, that the, the viewers really know that 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 is an open door of individuals that we're helping as well. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, that, that's something that people don't think about. Yeah. It's not only, like you said, it's not only stress, I mean, in the individual itself having those disabilities, but on the family and then them never having a getaway that's right. from that, because that's another, that's your whole day plus someone else's yes. that you're having to, you, you know, come packed into 24 hours. It's like, you're basically two people living, you know what I mean? It's, right. it's, it's crazy to think about, you know, just being around that stuff. Um, seeing some family members I've had, you know, deal with that. It's, yeah, it's a lot. It's right. a lot, man. And it takes an entire family to be there, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing for the law enforcement and, and for any disabled person that, that we help through CPD Ranch is that's a little bit what differentiates us from other organizations out there doing similar missions is, you know, the family isn't usually involved. It's the disabled person, right, or the veteran. That, that right. kind of a one-on-one -on -one thing. Um, we really want people to come with at least somebody 
Well, it, make, right? it makes sense, uh, right? Because spouse, yeah. a friend, yeah. you know, whoever, because we we want them to, number one, have that comfort zone of having their battle buddy, if you will, there with them. Um, but part of what we're doing is trying to show them how beneficial this can be so that they can go back home and they can try to replicate the same thing, right? They're always welcome to come back on future trips. But if you know, it's, it's give a man a fish or teach him how to fish for a life, right, feed him right. for a lifetime. Right? Exactly. We want to feed people for a lifetime and show them the benefits of this outdoor therapeutic recreation. That it's just as simple as man. If you were having a a, a rough day here and you were stressed out about work or family or anything going on, literally you could go out back and just sit in the grass and eat a sandwich for lunch. And just doing something that simple. Just it, people be surprised how much it would de-escalate the stress within them. Yeah. So, yeah. well, I think you guys got a good mission, man. I'm excited about. It. I'm excited to be able to, you know, contribute to this and also have you on here to hear about all this because I think it's something that, as I've already said like five times, I'm gonna say it again. It's not talked about enough. Um, I don't think you can talk about issues of this, you know, magnitude enough. You know, right. I think that any type of information that's given and and a lot of people too like. You're someone who who has experience. You've you've been in the field of battle. You've been in the field of you know law enforcement. And those people who may not can hear anyone talk about it, you know. But when they hear someone that's been through the, been through it and and came out on the other side, I think it's important, you know. And it also may ignite a fire in, within them that it wouldn't coming from someone else, right? Right. I Absolutely. think that's I think that's something that's important. But yeah, man, I appreciate your time um, today. So everyone can go you uh, cbdoutdoors.org. Right. And then you guys are on Instagram, Facebook, That's right. website. Um, and then you have all these things coming up yeah. that they can find check, out about. Check us out. You yeah. know, uh, there's going to be a lot going on. Uh, we're going to have events coming up. Uh, we're going to be looking for nominations for individuals to come on some of our trips. Um, and then, you know, this is just an outreach piece thing. We appreciate you having us on yeah. here for the visibility as well. And any of the viewers out there that, you know, uh, uh, find our mission, check our website out, send it to, you know, your corporate friends or anybody who this time of the year uh, could support a cause like us and hit that donate now button and, and help us out.